Hey everybody, welcome to the final Talking to Ourselves of 2020. I'm Omid Farhang. My guest today, Luke Sullivan, Chair of the Advertising Department at Savannah College of Art and Design and author of Hey Whipple Squeeze This, The Classic Guide to Creating Great Ads, a book considered to this day one of the most iconic and valuable resources ever written on how to succeed in the ad industry. Luke's award-winning career in the agency world spanned over 30 years and included stops at elite shops like Fallon and the Martin Agency. Today, in addition to his work at SCAD, he is a public speaker who has presented talks all around the world on building platforms, not just campaigns, leveraging cultural tensions to improve creativity, and practical advice on how to get the most out of creative people. Originally published in 1998, Hey Whipple Squeeze This is now in its fifth edition. For those interested in pursuing an advertising career, it is commonly thought of as a sacred text by both Amazon critics and industry insiders. It was voted number five in AdAge's list of best all-time marketing books. And you can also check out Luke's blog at heywhipple.com. Additionally, Luke just released his second book, a memoir called 30 Rooms to Hide In. He describes the book as, quote, the shining but funnier. Uh, this was a great episode. It was really great to finally meet and connect with Luke, whose book influenced me personally as I started my journey in advertising. Hoping you'll pocket a few bright, shiny jewels of wisdom to take with you into a bright, shiny 2021. This is Luke Sullivan and I talking to ourselves. My, I got into this business. I was very shallow. Uh, I was... Um, I was very shallow and um, I wanted to be rich. I grew up, my dad was a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. And so we grew up in this big ass house um, and I, I got used to being rich. I think this is really cool. So my dad died eventually, um, but I went off to college saying, fuck, I'm gonna be rich. Oh, can I swear on this? Yes, absolutely. Oh, great, great. Encouraged. Uh, um, and I wanted to be rich. So I went into college and uh, I took my first pre-med course, which is chemistry. And I got a big fat F first quarter, first year college. And I realized I, I can't be a doctor because you have to do physics and chemistry. And I just early pulled the red cord, I was out. And uh, I shopped around for a major for a while. Only interesting thing I could find at this teeny little college in Northfield, Minnesota was uh, psychology. So I ended up majoring in psychology, but I knew all along that this wasn't gonna be how I wanted to get rich because I still wanted to be rich. We used to, you know, just, talk to our, my, my buddies in the dorm, we're gonna be rich. And we would all talk about how everybody's gonna be working for each other, et cetera, et cetera. We were just money hungry. Should, we should have been Republicans really. Um, and uh, I got out in the street to there in, in Minneapolis with, with this fucking BA in psychology. Uh, they should have printed it on, you know, softer two ply paper for what it was good for. And, uh, um, I spent, I went directly with my degree in psychology directly into unskilled labor on a construction site for four years. <laughs> Which is why I really enjoy telling my students today, I just, I work at, you know, SCAD, Savannah College of Art, yeah. uh, of, of Savannah, Savannah College of Art and Design. And um, it's a, I tell my kids, it's a trade school. You're not going to some you know, pansy ass liberal arts school where you're going to get a two ply, you know, degree in psychology, you're learning a trade. Yeah. And so any ad student anywhere in any kind of program, doesn't have to be some fancy ass program like SCAT, you're learning a trade, which is such a cool thing to learn. There's no majors in sociology or psychology here. They're all about crafts, skill sets, whether it's screenwriting or, or, or film editing or jewelry making. Uh, I'm not, don't mean to be doing an ad for the school here, but I am doing an ad for learning how to actually do something, to make something. I, I don't know, it's just, I find it much more rewarding than writing a goddamn term paper. Well, to that point, I have to start by telling you, if I may, my version of a story that I presume you've heard many times before. The year's 2004, I'm 23 years old. I just graduated from college with a pansy ass liberal arts degree. <laughs> and I'm at a crossroads. Do I stick to the plan and go to law school and make my dad proud? And, and even though that whole prospect just kind of betrays my gut on a cosmic level, or do I follow my heart and pursue a, a creative career in advertising? And as I'm in turmoil grappling with this sort of fork in the road, my 
rebellious brother who had himself just broken into advertising gives me this book. He gives me, hey, Whipple, squeeze this. And of course, my first response is, what the fuck is the title all about? And I read it. And as each chapter passes, I just remember my inner turmoil sort of dissipating. And suddenly I'm bestowed with, I think the two greatest gifts that you can have when you're 23 years old. Number one is clarity. And number two is a plan. So Luke Sullivan, I'm going to start by thanking you for being there for me when I needed you. That's so great. That never gets old. And and I I take the compliment uh, very uh, respectfully and it never gets old hearing from people who, who got clarity. You know, you spent much of the 80s at the Martin Agency, you spent much of the 90s at Fallon. I wonder how would a colleague describe Luke Sullivan during that hungry young copywriter chapter of your career? What were you like to work with? What were you like to manage? I was a terrible person back then because I was actively alcoholic and an addict. Uh, after growing up in an alcoholic household, you would think that I would, you know, just, you know, stroke my Sherlock beard and go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do drugs and alcohol because it killed my dad. <laughs> but cut to me uh, some years later, absolutely strung out, uh, high all the time, uh, drunk every night, um, and and managing. The deal is alcoholics uh, generally um, are, as long as you can say, well, I'm doing my job, I can't be that bad. Generally, that's a, there's a reason for that. We keep our, we keep our doing our job well so we can get money to get high. So it's a kind of a bullshit argument, oh, I'm doing my job. So yeah, I did do my job well, but I was a pain in the ass. I was a faithless friend. I was a jerkwad. Uh, I wasn't an asshole to my partners. We all loved each other at the Martin Agency, but I was a, I was just a dirtbag user. Alcoholic addict. Um, everybody, will, a lot of people will remember it, me as fun because I wasn't a, a angry drunk, but I was a drunk. Um, I worried about getting sober, uh, and I only got sober because uh, the woman I love left me, uh, and I realized Jesus Christ, it's it's and that, that, it, it's all promised in the in the in the alcoholic anonymous material. You're gonna. You're going to drink until you lose everything. Then you're going to keep drinking until you almost die. And then you're going to keep drinking until there's no more bottom left. There's just no more bottom. You just keep digging until you just make sparks in the bedrock of reality. And uh, so in 1990, I uh, wisely and with the help of my family and friends surrounding me, uh, uh, went into rehab. Uh, I put off doing it because uh, I didn't think I could be a writer without getting high. This is what I was going to ask you. How how much did you cling to this idea that your alcoholism was somehow tethered to your creative ability? Until I almost died. Until I had no other choice to investigate something else. That's the way it always is and always will be. Some people can bail out early. We call those uh, low-bottom drunks. I was a very, uh, I mean, high-bottom drunks. I was a very low-bottom. And you do it only when you have no other options when you have no other options. Uh, I was convinced that I was gonna become a boring person, that it would no longer be funny, that my, uh, that, uh, my the muse would desert me. And um, uh, it, were, it was the opposite. Uh, it was the opposite. Uh, you know, we could keep telling ourselves, oh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, they were doing acid and blah, blah, blah. Uh, those are things, rationalizations, we alcoholics tell ourselves in order to kind of keep feeding this bullshit myth about pain and creativity. Oh, shut the fuck up. It's it's we, we get high because it feels good. That's why we get high, it feels good. But we figure all these things and we tell her, I can't stop drinking, I can't stop doing cocaine. Um, and then once I did, uh, and some sanity returned to my life and, uh, and some serenity, God, serenity returned to my life. And I could get a deep breath and I could be in a room with myself without the, without the music on or without something driving me. Uh, I had this clarity. This clarity, and all writers and creative people need clarity. And this clarity came to me that just improved my abilities to be creative a trillion percent. So I am lucky. And we all like to think, well, I overcame my own alcoholism by doing such and such. And it's not, it's a gift from God or a gift from whoever the fuck you want to call it. Some something happened to me that got me away from almost dying and getting into a life that I always wanted, which was to be creative, to be happy, to be serene. Uh, to, to be a better friend, a better husband. Uh, and I could do all that, uh, I realized, without um, getting high all the time. 
You know, I, we like to use this term in our industry, rock star, so-and-so is a creative rock star. Yeah. And I think thankfully that phrase has um, become detached from addict behavior and alcoholism behavior. And I think that obviously really started for anyone who watches Mad Men. It, you know, I think being impaired was so intrinsically linked to the creative process and kind of over time that started to dissipate. But how hard was it in 1990? I think now that, again, I think that cliche d doesn't have the same stronghold on in our industry that it did, you know, two, three decades ago, but. And it's not so much, it's not just our industry, Omid. Omid, is that, is that Omid, yeah. Omid, I'm no yeah. loser. White guy, what are you gonna do? Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's not just our industry, it's all, it's all any creative industry. I, and in my own book, 30 Rooms to Hide In, I call the syndrome uh, the tortured artiste. Right. The tortured artiste feels, he feels a pain that, Omid, you do not feel, but I feel this pain. And to, to feel this pain, I must create. And so fucking Elvis, you know, we, and we sit there and we clap at Elvis, he's getting fatter and fatter. Oh, but it's Elvis. He's and fucking Kurt Cobain, oh, he's a Z tortured artiste. And, my dad was the tortured artiste. He, he was a very creative person, photo photographer, creative soul. But they think that their, their self-torture gives them per, uh, permission to torture the rest of us. And, and you end up face down in the bathroom or dead on the bed like John fucking Belushi or, or spackling the ceiling with your brains like fucking Cobain, leaving all these messes for those of us who are not tortured to clean the fuck up. It's, of course, it's lost it's, uh, a lot of its, its, its glitz because what it is, it's just, it's suicidal narcissism that other people have to clean up after. Uh, so it's not just the industry. Uh, it's not just the industry. Now this is 1990, but it's also it was in Minnesota. Minnesota, pretty famous for being, the, our license plates say the land of 10,000 lakes, but we up there joke, land of 10,000 uh, rehab centers. Right. And it was a very rehab-friendly environment, particularly in 1990. Uh, I, I don't know the details, but I imagine there is an uptick in the acceptability or the attendance of AA around then. I could be very wrong. Um, but it was, uh, I thought I was going to have to hide the fact that I was a recovering alcoholic and then if I was going to be at a party. What am I going to do? I'd ask my counselor, you know, I'm going to be sitting there drinking a fucking Coke. Everybody's going to look at a Coke and no. And it, this is just more narcissism. Like you think people are gonna look at your fucking coke? What is the matter with you? <laughs> that you're so fucking special that you think people are gonna be thinking, hey, he's just drinking a coke. So it was, it was, it's just very weird and good that I was in Minnesota because I had all this support and all this, all this information at my, at my, as resources to let me know that I was just in the grips of this basically sort of chemistry-fed, toxic narcissism and. I still suffer from it. I still have it. Here I am talking about my fucking self on this podcast. Well, having 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 uh, very close loved ones whose lives have been saved by recovery, I think you know one of the great um, hurdles is the people who you hang out with. All of your friends, probably the thing that you have in common is drinking or drugs. And so the first thing you just really fear is that you're going to lose people who you love to hang out with and who um, who reinforce your identity. And then I think the second thing that's amazing, you know, I'm a father and when you have a kid, you realize there's this, there's this secret world right under your nose that you didn't realize existed, yeah. you know, of other parents. They see you with your kid and you can see memories in their eyes, the way people open the door for you. It's been right there on the surface. You didn't know it. And I think the same is true uh, for people in recovery, whereas there's this secret world of people who've been through what you've been through, who had a dad like your dad. Yeah. And once you open yourself to that world, you're very welcomed into it. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. I like the way you put that secret world right below your nose. Yep, yep. Well, that came with that serenity to even notice that there is another world outside of your own fucking chemical storm. Uh, and then once it calms down, you realize all the people you've heard around you and you start to start to correct as much damage as you can and make restitution and apologize. It's not apologize, it's to make amends. And uh, yes, so the world enlarges uh, for you, uh, for me, I can say. Uh, once I got straight and I, my ability to concentrate went up. Um, uh, it, it just, it, it all changed. Uh, 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 I started to, I mean, I, you know, I made a, a national name for myself in the award shows up through Martin Agency. Uh, I got sober my first year at Fallon and my years at Fallon, it just kind of went through the roof. Uh, uh, helped that I was working at the best agency in the world at the time, basically the 
Chris Bendroba Five Wyden of the time, um, working on a great team. Um, and well, I never created any famous campaigns that people lean back and play the case history. I was a I was a, uh, a reliable hitter on a on a World Series team, and uh, that goes a long way for uh, for terms of reputation, et cetera. Okay, we're going to get into the book in some detail, but let's just start at thirty thousand feet. So I, I think anyone who would listen to this podcast would at least be aware of Hey Whipple, Squeeze This, if not had read it. Um, it's not only a book for people starting out in the business, but for those who do read it when they're starting out, it's a kind of a perfect introduction into what advertising people mean when we use well-trodden terms like authenticity, simplicity, storytelling, conflict, platform. So, you know, it could be called a self-help book. It could be called an instruction manual. How do you describe it? How much you describe the book at a dinner party? Well, I started off writing this book at Fallon in the year 19, uh, right after I got sober. Um, and, uh, you know, that's part of the clarity. Uh, I gave a speech down at the Portfolio Center in Atlanta. I went down there. I didn't want it to be another one of these assholes who shows up at the agency reel and says, look at these cool commercials and then uh, fend off questions and get in the plane again. I wanted to leave the students uh, with actual things they could do, you know, how to improve this particular radio script or how to, how to not fuck something up. And, uh, and uh I heard after that speech that uh, I left the I left the slides there with him. This was back with slides, you know, sure. and uh, I left the slides there. And somebody told me that the slides had turned up somewhere as a as a uh, screensaver. Uh, I thought, wow, that really was a good call just to get them shit they can do. And from that, I turned that into an article for Creativity Magazine, which is one of their biggest requested reprints. And I thought, wow, there's a hunger for just advice from one craftsman to another. You know, not no ad star bullshit, just, well, let's see if this is your problem. Maybe you want to try that. And it just took off. And so I said, fuck yeah. I'd written other other essays and articles for Ad Week and Ad Age, et cetera. And I started stringing those together. And then um, and then I just started writing the damn thing. And the reason why uh, the, the fire lit under it was that I realized that I, when I tried to do research for such a book, there was no books to pull research from all the books in advertising sucked. Now, there are some really good ones now. I've got lots of good competition. But at the time, there was only this piece of shit called Ogilvy on advertising. If you've ever read that, they too should print that fucking thing on soft two-ply paper because it's just terrible. It's just terrible. It's written by an angry, arrogant old man who was full of rules and wrote one decent ad back in the 40s and then talked about how we lived in the castle. It just pissed me off. I said, no, this cannot be the only thing that people can turn to. And so... I, I just started writing it and it was all with the, the, the purposeful intent of helping some newbie who I remembered that who that was, who I was in 1979, scratching my ass, standing in the hallway of a new agency, wondering what the fuck is expected of me. Yeah, I think, I mean, all creative people have certain principles that they, that they adhere to or certain lessons learned that you know, um, guide their process. But once you decide that you're going to write a book and it's a, it's an ambitious and comprehensive undertaking that's going to require you to do, you know, deeper thinking than you did writing any article. I wonder, the question may sound sort of counterintuitive, but, but working as a copywriter while you were writing it, did you fear at all that to deconstruct, to deconstruct or psychoanalyze creativity at length would somehow prohibit your ability to sort of tap into its magic when you need it. That's, that's not, it's not counterintuitive at all. It's a very smart question. Uh, and, and no, I did not, number one, I didn't sit down to decipher creativity. I sat down to give some advice to the new fucks walking into the agency going, what the fuck is expected of me? Right. That I can talk with some authority about. And so that's what I started off doing. Interesting question you ask, uh, and it's advice I give to my students when facing a whole bunch of work, whether it's just their regular schoolwork uh, or to somebody at an agency today, a senior writer at an agency today, of tackling a big ass campaign. Big ass campaigns can be very intimidating because you want to you want to stand back and you want to see if you can't get your whole thirty thousand foot view of this whole problem and throw your arms around the thing and then start doing a whole bunch of research because you don't know if you really know the right question to ask and so you keep digging and digging and finally start to feel some creative friction under your feet and so you stand back and you take a deep breath and I'm going to start at the beginning, which is a bad mistake. Never start at the beginning. I say, and I got this from a great writer named Anne Lamott who says, start from where you are. Start from where you are. And where you are is what are you thinking about? 
what interests you in this big ass pile that you're staring at that's due you know, next week to the creative director? Well, I had this dumb idea about this social post, start there. Now, the way I wrote both of those books, Hey Whipple and 30 Rooms was the same way. I started writing about the thing I was thinking about in, 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 in Hey Whipple, I was working currently on this huge radio campaign for one of the mini RBOX, the Regional Bell Operating Committees uh, or corporations, it was Ameritech. And I had to write 50 million radio commercials for Ameritech. And so I was thinking about radio. Radio is my favorite medium. That's why I was bragging earlier about that Dunwoody thing. And so I decided I'm gonna start writing about radio. And it was easy because that's the shit I was thinking about, but, 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 and I could start talking to the typewriter. More advice to writers, don't fucking write, talk. So I'm talking to the typewriter, blah, 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 trying to give helpful advice about radio. Uh, what happens once you get that done, there's this thing called creative adjacencies by a guy named Stephen Johnson, some kind of creative theorist guy, well-respected. Creative adjacencies are when once you, and only once you do something, adjacencies like doors appear next to the thing you just did. Well, if this, then maybe this or this or this. And so the Jason says, here, what's the chapter before? What's the chapter after? Well, TV, radio, broadcast, advertising, maybe those go together. And the spine of the book starts to form in the same way as the spine of a campaign forms, just by sitting down, grabbing something that interests you. For 30 rooms, I didn't sit down and write down. It was a dark and stormy night when I was born, you know, way the fuck back in 1954. Uh, I, I wrote about the thing I'd been thinking about for years, this one terrorizing moment when my dad was drunk as a fucking skunk, holding a bottle of bourbon and a, a 22 rifle, and he was pounding on the outside of the door of this library in this big ass house where my mom and my little brother and I were cowering and worried for our lives. That's the thing I wrote first. Once you get that, well, what does it suggest? How did I get to this place or where does it go from here? And so that's precisely how I wrote both of those things and how I recommend you, any writer or art director listening. Yes, get the lay of the land, do the 30,000 foot, do the research, understand the SWAT, understand uh, you know, what do we have that uh, competition, that, that customers want that the competition isn't giving them. Have all that stuff in your heart and your head, but then lean back, or as the campaign start, we need an activation event. Well, fuck that. What 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 jumps out at you? Reach in and grab that motherfucker, pull it out, and do it. Right. Anyway, that's my opinion. the adjacencies thing is is fascinating. I think I think I think the resistance to starting anything ambitious, whether it's a huge campaign or writing a book, is that you know you have this this ambition for this comprehensive tapestry of yes. wisdom, which I think that's how I would describe Hey Whipple. And I think the truth of the creative process is. You don't have to know all the steps. You may not even have to know the first step. I think what you find with a grit, like you said, like, hey, just write the write a Facebook post about it because yeah. you're going to write the Facebook post and you may not know anything else, but you might look at it or someone else might look at it and you might realize reasons you liked it that didn't even occur to you when you came yeah. up with it in the first place. And so one step will reveal the next step and all of a sudden you've yeah. taken 20 steps. That's exactly right. And that resistance you talk about is really fascinating. Of course, there's many books about creative resistance. I liken it to this. I think that as all creative people, we have very low self-esteem. It's just one of the things that curse us particular. I think all people have low self-esteem, but I think we creatives, we're bent little trees that grew up. For some reason, we just doubt ourselves. And so even when we realize we have talent, we sit down, I'm gonna make something cool. I would hate to be a musician, for example. I grew up with the Beatles. There's no way I can do anything as good as the Beatles. So as creative people, I have this image of the Beatles way the fuck up here. And then here's me way down here. This huge gap between perfection as I understand it and my abilities here. And so that torches us, that difference, that difference. And, and it keeps us from putting down the first stanza of a, of a song I wanna write because it's not gonna be as good as the Beatles. And it, it, this, this is what keeps so many creative people from really getting any momentum going because I'm not John fucking Lennon and Paul McCartney. <laughs> right. But either were they until they sat there in Lennon's home and by the fireplace and the strumming, you know, crappy little rock and roll songs until they became um, deities in my mind. <laughs> you know, one of my one of my favorite posters when I got to CPB was this poster in the hallway that said your heroes are your competition. And that's sort of more, more true yeah, in this like industry that. than 
than, than maybe any oh, other. Man. And the first brief I got as an intern was um, for Miller High Life, which the agency had just won. And the paralysis I felt because the Miller High Life Man campaign that Wyden had done, you know, five, 10 years earlier was one of the reasons I got into advertising. No. The writing in that campaign, I thought to myself, if I could do things like that, I think I would have a fulfilling career. But as a result of my reverence for that earlier campaign, I, I feel like I remember just feeling so hogtied, not knowing where to start. But it is really incredible that you have this reverence for maybe certain agencies, certain eras, certain creative directors. And then all of a sudden you're a junior copywriter yeah. and you're in a pitch against those people. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're at that damn agency. Yeah. You know, you're there. I love that line. You're, what is it? Your, your heroes are your competition. That is such a great way to think. I tell my students, here's the thing. Uh, number one, not only do you have to succeed uh, in this business, uh, you have to succeed wildly. Uh, when I grew up, uh, I wanted to be a, a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you can't retire in a million bucks anymore. So basically it, 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 it kind of gobsmacks these kids to realize that I have to be a multimillionaire, number one, just to fucking retire. I have to be a multimillionaire. Well, that kind of raises its stakes already, you know? So how do you become a multimillionaire in advertising? Well, you're probably not gonna become a multimillionaire by doing adequate work that's, that's, that survives the focus groups and answers the brief. You're going to have to do something spectacular. And so, yeah, I, I say you want to unseat the Beatles. You want to, you want to, you want to buy Dan Wyden out of his shitty little agency and show him how to do it right, right? I mean, that's really what you have to aspire to, in order to really swing for the fences. It's a lot to ask of a of a somebody who's a, you know a year into college, who's you know a year away from their prom, and say, hey, it's time to be a multimillionaire and, and unseat Dan Wyden. But that's there's this great line from the movie uh, Bull Durham. And uh, one of the things Kevin Costner says is that uh, baseball, I'll say advertising, is a game that needs to be played with fear and arrogance. That's arrogant to think I'm gonna unseat the Beatles and I'm gonna buy Dan Wyden out, uh, but you need it. And fear, obviously, fear I think is even a better, uh, better guide. It keeps you humble, keeps you real, keeps you trying, doesn't let you rest. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But I just love. We agree, Omid, uh, on just about everything. I think we're. I think we're talking to each other. And if we get any listeners, that would be really great. <laughs> we will. We will. Um, I, my original copy of Hey Whipple. I remember cited a print ad. I think it was from Penn Tennis Balls. It was a tennis ball company. It laid out the copy on the page in such a way that you had to sort of read it with your head going back and forth like a fan at a live tennis match. I remember that was one of the first great examples of just a print ad that was was bigger than a piece of paper as I was, you know, endeavoring to start this new career. You're now on your you're now on your fifth edition. Yep. Motivated by the fact that the industry has changed so much since you first wrote the book and that's driven by technology and new media and all that. Just tell me a little bit about the process of continually keeping this living document updated. And, and in doing so, having to keep yourself updated so that this document remains current, remains relevant to each new generation. Well, I, I am going to try to write a sixth edition, uh, probably after I, I retired from teaching. Uh, and teaching has helped, been what's helped keep me relevant because uh, I have to teach the next generation of kids. And if I'm teaching print, print ads from the 80s, it's probably not going to be very helpful. Um, uh, I had a lot of help in the latest edition from Edward Boches, who was a big shot at um, Mullen. Uh, and he went on to teach at BU. He just retired recently. Um, uh, I decided, I mean, I, the, the fourth edition was pretty up to date. I, you know, I'm not completely clueless, even though I, my deep skill set is interactive and uh, in, uh, social. But, you know, you can hold your own. Uh, but I decided uh, I needed another person in there. I wanted to get that. I wanted to do a little collaboration. So Edward came in. He wrote five chapters of the latest edition. Um, what I'm going to do going forward, I have to talk to the publisher. I may, if they want to sell me the rights back, that might be interesting. Because uh, then what I would probably do is I would make it, it wouldn't be as popular a book, but I would make a digital only uh, version of this book where I could embed the TV commercials I talk about and embed you know, uh, links to any website or cool case history I'm talking about. And then I could then update it just any damn time I wanted to. Uh, but digital books, I don't know what the sales are of digital books. Maybe they do really well. 
Uh, but as an old book nerd, print addict, I really have been, a, I'm a book lover. I love science fiction like crazy. Um, I love to be able to smell a book and it's a, it's a serious problem. Uh, it's a serious fucking You're, you're huffing books. You're still I an have, addict. I'm, I'm huffing books, man. Uh, and so this, the authors just love to hold the, feel the weight of a book in their hands and turn the pages and smell the paper. And uh, I, I, I will miss that if I do go digital only, uh, but maybe the publisher will say, no, uh, you have to write a new edition. So about every four years, they give me a phone call and say, I say, are dipping down uh, and it's time to do a new, it's past that time now. Um, but the fact they haven't called me may means that they're maybe just seeing how much more life they can get out of the book before they uh, uh, delist it. Um, in which case then I'll, buy the, I'll, I'll have the rights back and I'll, I'll do something interesting. I'm also thinking about possibly doing sort of an online uh, school, basically how the lectures that I give in class uh, and content from the book and a whole bunch of other shit I've made over the years, turn it into something you can um, buy online. I don't know yet. You know, a lot changes about the industry and the, the rate of change has never been so rapid. Um, and, and yet as you write various editions and you would possibly endeavor to write a sixth edition. Is there one or two main principles in particular that you feel like, hey, no yeah. matter how the industry changes, there's these no two question. things will never change? Oh, there's, there's no question. There's no question. Every single lecture, I the first lecture I give to, 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 to people six months out of prom who have identified themselves as ad majors is a lecture called authenticity, which you know you said is a buzzword, and it is a buzzword like all buzzwords. It's used until it's bankrupt. Um, uh, and maybe we can close out in this this area because I find this area really interesting, especially in the in the in the land of the GOP and Republicans and uh, fake news and Trump and the bullshit and that the, 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 there's no agreed upon reality anymore here in America. And uh, authenticity. Um, the, 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 first, the first rule that every single, and, and I repeat this slide throughout all that first year is start with the truth. Start with the truth. Now we get to write our own strategies here in ad school and you don't do that in an agency. So maybe I should be teaching strategists, um, but most agencies don't start with the truth. They, they start with the client's uh, fact sheet or they start with some bullshit from a focus group, but truth is not owned by anybody. Uh, it's not owned by anybody. It is what it is. Uh, to quote Trump talking about the COVID. <laughs> oh my God, sorry. Um, it, it, it's truth. And sometimes the truth is not a good one. And I use many wonderful examples. My favorite I use is this wonderful Canadian example. You can find it online for a, uh, a cough syrup called Buckley's. And Buckley's is the worst tasting shit in the universe. It's the worst tasting stuff. In fact, I even went online to find fans of Buckley's showing themselves drinking it and nearly puking. It's that bad. And Buckley's, instead of trying to uh, you know, dodge this truth, this unfortunate fact that we do taste bad, but but we have all these the, all these minerals that is good for no. They just took it. They they embrace the suck as you've often heard that term. They take this truth just like VW took the fact that they're small and ugly. They embrace this truth that we taste terrible, and they just have this marvelous little fake taste test. It looks like it's filmed on a, on an iPad of people drinking from two cups and the two cups that labels change as each person changes. One cup says a Buckley's, the other cup says uh, spring break hot tub water. And they can't, they, and they're blindfolded. So they don't know that they can't tell. Well, is this the same stuff? I can't tell. Or oh, the public restroom puddle or is it Buckley's? I don't know, is this the same thing? And then it cuts to finally, it tastes awful. And there's a little check mark, boom, it works, boom. It is fucking brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I, maybe, maybe uh, Omid, it doesn't uh, uh, turn your crank like it turns mine. But to me, the, the minimalism of the creative execution and the bravery of saying this about this product, soon as you do that, number one, you have authentic voice. Why would they say, are they crazy? Why would they say something bad about their product like that? Unless what I'm hearing is true. Right. When you when you base something on, why would Volkswagen say it's ugly, but it gets you there? Why would they say it makes your house look bigger? Why would they say uh, uh, we get flat tires too? Why would they say that? Soon as you soon as you admit to any kind of uh, weakness 
failure, whatever. Vulnerability makes people like you, Omid. When you say, yeah, I'm afraid of spiders and never makes fun of you. Yeah, he's this big manly guy, Omid, but he's always oh, all. <laughs> You know, it makes it likable, it makes you relatable. It makes me think that you are actually talking to me like I have a brain. So this idea of authenticity cannot try to be something you're not like, oh, we're the best tasting lime, lime drink available. Number one, that's not a fact. It, it, even if it was a fact, who gives a shit? It's a claim and it's not truth. What is the truth? What is the truth? And you can't look it up online and you can't. And so I, I tell these students, let's sit down, write the truest things you can say about this product or this brand or this customer or the a category around your, your brand. What are the truths of cars? Cars, that, that I feel like I'm, I'm hurting the fucking world driving this new car around if it isn't a, a Prius. What is the truth about car salesmen? And we, we all know these truths. We have these truths, so start with these truths. Well, one of the one of the byproducts, it's so soul-sucking when you work in the industry. And if you're working for a large brand, let's say a, a soda a soda brand that claims it is the most, you know, refreshing, refreshing lemon <laughs> lime flavor. Okay. So so basically what you're requiring all of your employees at the brand and all of your agency partners um, who you hire to essentially be complicit yeah. in this bullshit. And yes. so now you're on a bedrock of bullshit. Yes. It means you can never really meander from bullshit no. back no. into truth because the foundation is bullshit. Yes. And so so all the conversations have this sort of soul-sucking quality to them. And yes. it's like, you know, you're, it's like leaving, a, you have to basically extricate yourself from a cult. Yes, you know? yeah. Soon as you agree to that bullshit in the first page, you're done. It's over. Yeah. It yeah. is over. If, if you don't get this part right, everything after that is bullshit. Your, exactly. your book is largely about creativity. What, one of the ironies in our business is that the reward for creativity is often leadership responsibility, which is a different skill than creativity. And some people are great at both and some are great at one, but really not great at the other. I wonder, you know, how did that manifest in your career where, you know, the reward for a great campaign is now you're managing 20 people and managing 20 people doesn't have that much to do with generating a great campaign. No, 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 no. My old boss, um, the best boss I ever had, um, Mike Hughes at the Martin Agency, sure. uh, admitted himself. He said, uh, being a great creative doesn't mean you're a great creative director. Uh, and he had his own doubts about his own skills. And I certainly had my own doubts about being a creative director. I wanted to be liked too much. Uh, but I was overreacting to uh, Alex McGuskey's of the world who uh, didn't mind uh, crushing people's hopes and fears and bulldozing over the nurseries of, of crying babies in order to get to, and I shouldn't say that because I never saw him do that, but I understand it was very hard to work there. And that, uh, uh, and I didn't want to be that. So I overreacted and I wanted to be liked too much. I wanted to be liked too much and I didn't want to, Ah, boy, I, 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 there's a happy medium where you can uh, be hard on the work and not hard on the people. But I, 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 didn't, I didn't get that math just right. I could have been a better creative director. Um, but it is very weird. This advertising agency business is so fucked up because here, here's what happens when you have a room where the client and a creative person is trying to, trying to sell an idea to a client. The client is basically... Uh, probably the faucet salesman who had, who had the best route and he sold the most faucets. And so he works his way up at uh, Delta Faucet and he ends up being in charge of all the creative work at Faucet, all right, at Delta. Um, me, on the other hand, over here, I'm a, I'm a recovering alky junkie. <laughs> and, uh, and then I figure out I have this talent and I sober up and I start being able to sling ideas as, as quickly and easily as I'd like to and make them kind of crystal clear and, and, and fucked up and, and eye-catching and memorable. And I start to do that at my first agency and I get better and better at it. And I start getting uh, these raises and now I become an associate creative director and a creative director. Um, what's happening to me on the creative side is the same thing is happening to the, <laughs> the guy over in the Delta faucet. He just sold faucets and now he's the charge of creative. And I just slung ideas and now I'm in charge of people. 
it's just so fucked up. And so basically, I also say presentation skills are really important because basically there you are in this room with a, a, a guy who it, 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 you would only hope was it, had a had a master MBA, but it's basically somebody who majored in fucking charts, right? Somebody who majored in charts and I show up and I'm trying to sell him an idea, which is basically invisible. And it's kind of, you know, it's poetic and it's interesting. So I'm selling uh, an, an invisible poetry machine to this fucking scientist. <laughs> and uh, no, dude, dude, it's really cool. You should do this, man. And so, uh, it, of course, it's a, just a huge constant car crash going on and on and on because of these different tribes uh, that are in the room. Now, the good creative directors realize that they are from this tribe and they have to understand the tribe they're talking to. And the smart ones who figure out how to translate their own world into his world, her world, uh, do very well. But it is a fucked up business, I assure you. I think one of the ways that it's fucked up that I love it the most is that whether it's a great day or a hard day, no two days are alike, no two clients are alike. And, and each day you, you sort of get back in the cage. Um, you entered academia and joined SCAD about a decade ago. Yep. After working at agencies so long, do you, do you miss being in the cage? Uh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. I do. I do. Uh, I miss the money. Money, it was nice. Uh, money, money's really nice. Have you met money? <laughs> money, come in here, will you please? <laughs> money's nice. Uh, and uh, I didn't do this for the money. What it was, uh, I was in, a, you know, when I jumped out of advertising, I was working for the world's worst client. I can happy to name them AT&T. They're such a, a, a chunk of excrescence wrapped around a ball of glowing evil uh, that pulsates pus and kind of rolls into this boiling vat of goat urine. Anyway, I, but don't get me started. Anyway, um, we, we were a professional agency. I was working with really good people. Uh, and um, I had this marvelous, marvelous account executive named Maureen, rest, her, uh, rest, rest in peace, Maureen. She died uh, years ago of, of breast cancer, but she was the, she was a, she was a dray horse. She was fucking great, and and she had a bit more cheerleader in me than I do. You know, she's a little bit more positive than I like to see things, but she could she could do that. She was a fucking star, and um, she knew how to start each meeting, no matter how she felt inside. She knew she had her sort of pat set pat. Uh, so anyway, here we are. We had to go down to uh, their, their headquarters in San Antonio. And they made us go down there. But they didn't have to, but they made us go down there. And they set their meetings at 7.30 just to piss us off. I'm not making it up. 7.30 in the morning, you have to go down to world headquarters of AT&T, the top of this you know, big-ass building. And you have to go past the 400 floors of lawyers, because that's mostly what AT&T is, it's lawyers. And you go into this marketing thing. It was a rainy ass Tuesday after a long trip there and the rain is falling. It's 7.30 in the morning. It's a fucking Tuesday. And, and you know, uh, the, 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 the droplets are going down, the droplets are going down the window. And I, I, I'm just sitting there hating everybody and every single thing around me, having mass killing in my head involving all kinds of automatic weapons in my head. Uh, and and um, and Maureen gets up and she uses her her standard opening line. She rubs her hands together and says, "Oh, well, it's, we're excited to be here today." And I realize I'm not excited. Back to the authenticity thing. You realize you were the one who was full of shit. Yeah, yeah. I just I couldn't do it anymore. After that, after that, I couldn't do it anymore, and I well, realized. Listen, it, it's a it's a uh, good segue into a question I wanted to ask you. You know, it's a topic that you discuss in the book, which is you, you quoted as success without selling out. Where are we in 2020 on selling out? How does how does each of us determine where to draw that line? And, and maybe you just answered it for yourself a little bit as, you know, you're, when your soul is screaming at you. Well, I think it goes go back to truth. Are you being asked to say something that's not authentic, not truthful? Uh, here's the way I put it. And I call it the, 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 the at the bar with your best friend test. You're sitting there, there's Omid and your best friend. What's your best friend's name? Uh, Andy. Andy. Okay, so there's Omid and Andy at the bar. And Andy says, oh, Omid, you're in the advertising. Yeah, that's really cool, yeah? So what are you working on? And Omid says, uh, I'm working on um, uh, Roma pasta. Oh, okay, that's cool. 
yeah, yeah. What are you doing, Omid? I mean, tell me an idea. I love this business. And so Omid, because Omid's a hack, you're not. Omid's a hack. And Omid says, and here's the thing. You have to be able to look your friend Andy in the eye. And you tell Andy, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Roman pasta takes you back to old Italy. <laughs> this is but it, this happens in agencies across the fucking globe somebody with a straight face will say that but if you cannot say your idea to your best friend andy looking him square in the eyes it's bullshit right your friend usually you know he'll go whether he's a a lawyer or a real estate agent that what they'll think in their head is oh okay you suffer great indignities at your work too <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> it is. If you can't say it to your best friend, what are you saying it to the world for? Let me ask you something about, about uh, academia and, and teaching and the next generation of students. You know, given, given how quickly the world is changing, I wonder from your perspective, are students today any better or worse equipped or, or even discernibly different as they enter the industry versus maybe when you started at SCAD 10 years ago? This is a really uh, good question and a tough question and one I can only pro provide my partial answer to. Uh, being an old uh, print hack from the 80s, um, uh, it may be because of my uh, training or my experience or my fear, but I start with print. I think print is an absolutely humble way to learn the two core skill sets of advertising, which is writing and art direction to make a little square and a white piece of paper fucking interesting. And if it's an idea that is really interesting that you could look your friend in the eyes and say, yeah, look at this thing, oh, that's cool. It's probably more to it than just that. It becomes portable and you can stretch it into other dimensions, uh, et cetera. Um, so we start with the print. So you've been teaching students for the past 10 years and another skill is you know, cultivating talent. I, I just wonder, 10 years in, can you spot a student who you know oh, no right question. away is no going to be a superstar? No question. No question. Yeah. No question. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And what's fun, what's really fun is to, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, there's a, a gay kid and he's in the closet, doesn't know. Well, our version of that is it's an art director, uh, but he's he's really a writer. And I try to get him to come out of the writing closet. Right. Dude, you're not an art director. Look at this. Oh, come on, shut up. No, I'm going to be an art director. See, I have a theory. I have a theory about this. When I got to Miami Ad School, it was, I think, um, uh, art directors, I think, outnumbered copywriters three to one. And I was trying to figure out why this was because I love language and it, it seemed like a natural progression of the way that I had kind of, you know, nurtured my own creativity growing up. And then I think it just came down to, you know, it just sounds way better to be an art director. You got, you got the art which is yeah. always good. And then you got director, everybody wants right. to direct right. versus right. copywriter, the, the closest thing. When you first hear the term, you think it's basically the guy who you know has to check for typos before the document goes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the pool, at the, uh, at the LA hotel, the pool in between the shoot, when you go to the pool to hang out, the art director is uh, you know, ordering the drinks and look really cool and their Ray-Bans. And the copywriter is probably that very pasty white guy with the, uh, with the uh, foam board uh, in the pool. <laughs> Yeah. Now, before we get to our final three questions on your website, you allude to a Kobe Bryant story. As a uh, lifelong Laker fan, I demand you uh, tell me your, your uh, Kobe Bryant story. Uh, with. Uh, oh, God. It's, I'll have to do the short version because I, I, I'm not a basketball fan. Okay. Not at all. But um, uh, I cried when he died and I cry when I talk about him in class. Um, Kobe Bryant um, fell in love with advertising when he was working on his own brand of shoes, uh, working through Wyden and Kennedy. Wyden and Kennedy, there's a really smart guy there named Chris Rye, uh, who started an agency now, it's out in uh, LA called Zambezi, still there. And uh, he and his partner approached uh, Kobe to say, would you bankroll this new agency that we want to do? And, and Kobe said, yes. So Kobe was the majority owner of this agency. And, um, and they were really young back then when I went out there, this is probably about 10 years ago. And um, I'm driving into work one day and I get this phone call and this woman says, I have Kobe Bryant in the line, would you care to speak with him? And I, well, I, even I, schmuck like me, knows Kobe Bryant. Uh, and I pull over and I say, yeah, okay, interesting. And he calls me and I'm like, yeah. And he said, I read your book. And I go, fuck yeah. 
he really he's just fucking brilliant this guy and um and, and he's in, what he's interested in he's really interested in right and so he's read my book and a bunch of other ones and he's just interested in advertising period and um he wanted to see if he couldn't improve the agency that he was you know majority stakeholder of and he said i like this book get this guy out here to come and uh, give some speeches and blah 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 so I, I did. I went out there for two weeks in this, I forget, about 10 years ago in the summer. And uh, he put me up in the in shutters. And uh, um, I uh, basically did a kind of a creative, uh, I, I did my all, I basically did my, my all of my lectures there. But I also performed kind of what we might call a, 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 a creative physical of the agency and just gave him my opinion on all the processes there that I saw that were working and ones that could use improvement. That's it. Um, I, I had him with me in the room exactly once. I have a picture of him uh, somewhere on my website there with him and me looking really cool. I mean, him looking really cool. And um, uh, and the day that I was finished, uh, I was supposed to go out to his place uh, and present it to him. Uh, our, his driver picked me up and I was on the way out there uh, and the driver gets a call, says, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bryant regrets, but he has to cancel. And I said, ah, that's too bad. I, you know, I'm a star fucker like everybody else. And uh, I just sent it, mailed it to him. And, uh, uh, oh my God, oh my God, that guy. Um, uh, I still think very highly of Zambezi. They're, 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 yeah. they're one of the very few women-owned agencies in the whole goddamn world. And they just got a lot of smart people working there. Um, in any case, um, uh, when he died, I, I was I was surprised by how much it hit me, because after I'd met him and I I started I had to study his, his highlight reel and just to look at this guy to see if he's oh my god I started watching this guy he's fucking he's just fucking it's just incredible and then I saw that 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 uh, that um, that uh, documentary he made what's the name of that what's it called it's Kobe called? Bryant's Muse yeah yeah God it just it just it just cracked my brain like a fucking eggshell to see the concentration and the power of, of his focus on excellence was, which I wish I could show that, show that thing to every single copywriter and art director in the world and say, just like you said, your, champion, your, your hero should be your competition, which is what he wanted. He wanted to have six rings. He wanted to, to, to sit at the table with magic. He didn't make his goal, but that's how high he set his goal. He wanted that. Uh, and then to see him playing with that injury in the final game of his career, and, and, to, and to see this guy talk about how he knows what LA looks like at 4.30 in the morning, because that's the day that I'm, every time I'm down at the goddamn stadium practicing. And I think about, you know, some of the half-assed students that I get who, you know, show up to some classes, show up to some, or bring in three ideas when I ask for 100, whatever. What the fuck are you doing in this class? What the fuck are you doing in anything unless you try that hard? Why are you here? If this isn't what something you want to just be the world's best at, go find something that you do. So he taught me, he taught me by way of just his charisma and his legacy. And um, and so when I, when I get kids coming in, uh, this is my God, min, min, min. oh, shut the fuck up. Watch this guy, watch this guy. He's not a God, he's just a regular guy who decided something. He decided this matters to me and he decided I'm going to be not just good at it, I'm not gonna just be the best at it, I'm gonna be the best of all time at it. And to all intents and purposes, he did. Yeah. He did. And so Well, when you set your sights that high, you fail and you're only one of the five best people to ever do it. That's a yeah. good definition of failure. Yeah, his his intensity clearly left a mark on you. That's amazing. Oh God, it was so cool. And you know what? He he didn't he wasn't like that in the room. Of course not. Yeah. He wasn't like that. I, in fact, I'm I'm much more intense than he is. And I'm just because I'm an old white guy sitting talking to a computer. <laughs> But it, it, no question, it left its mark on me. And if I could have it leave a mark on every single advertising person, boy, oh boy, work would be better. Real quick, we end every uh, podcast with the same three questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, number one, Luke, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon you most despise? Um, bum, bum, bum. Oh yeah, no question about it because all my kids use it too. 
I'm going to take this idea and put it into different mediums. <laughs> mediums is mediums, okay? Let's okay. try to get them to picture this. Mediums as a plural exists if you're at fucking Montgomery Ward and you're pointing to the middle pile of underwear. Yeah, do you have any more of the mediums? <laughs> okay. All right, I like it. All right, second question. In a client meeting, what is the most memorable slash fucked up response you ever yeah. received to a presentation? There's no question work. about it. And I, the long version of this story is in Hey Whipple. Uh, it's, it's in there. And this really happened. This really happened. And it was for an AT&T company, AT&T. This is how, they, how, how insane they were. It was, I often, I'll just get right to the story. The story is, is after presenting an, the same idea over the course of nine months, it took so long to present this one idea to get it sold that in our agency right there in Atlanta, when we started on the campaign, there was a big hole in the ground next to our tall building. By the time it was approved, there were 40 stories next to us. A 40 story fucking building had been built during the production of this kind of okay idea. Um, we were in the last meeting, we'd already presented to the CEO, okay? The C fucking O, CEO fucking O. And, uh, but then suddenly, because of this kind of company, what it was, everybody's creative person. So we got a call from some piece of shit, somebody, I don't know who, you know, vice president of vice presidency of assistants of douchebags, whatever. And we have to call pile in the car and go out to this, another place uh, outside the beltway and present to this other person who's, who's just a, a nothing, just, just a nothing, a blank spot on the org chart, a waste of valuable toner, okay? And we have to present to this person, this woman, and this woman, after we presented, and by then we'd just done the dog and pony so many times. I said, get out here, dog. Yeah, dog, jump through the hoop. Yeah, yeah, get out here. No, we, I still presented with as much force as I could bring to bear. And after some silence, she reached into her purse. I'm not making this up. I have uh, witnesses. Um, uh, God, she reached into her purse and she pulled out her key ring. And it was a Kermit the Frog doll. And she was a bendy little doll. And she bent the, the hands over the ears so that the frog doll you know, covered his ears. And she said, Mr. Froggy doesn't like some of the things he's hearing. <laughs> That's, you know, so talk about invincible, uh, stupid is invincible. What do you say to that? Right. Oh, indeed. Uh, have you asked Mr. Froggy to contemplate the pot? No. What the fuck do you say to that? That's a rare breed of insane. It is. I went into a fugue state and I have no memory of what I'd said or I'm not, I'm not joking about that either. I have no memory of the meeting after that. I, I do remember coming to in the car on the way home and, uh, and establishing that's what she said, right? She did say that. Uh, and that's where my memories start again. It was... Uh, <laughs> as if I'd seen the mothership of stupidity that Steven Spielberg shot, where I saw so much stupid in one place that I was stunned into this sort of existential solipsistic void where no words were possible. And that's why I came to later. <laughs> Final, I love it. Final question is called the one that got away. What was that one beloved idea? It could be from any chapter of your career that you could never quite sell for whatever reason, but yes, it, it just, yes. you always think about it. Yes, I'm gonna, uh, this goes out to Eric. Uh, Eric, uh, who was at the uh, American Legacy, still there. Eric, um, I'm not gonna say his last name, but yeah, everybody knows Eric at uh, Legacy. He's a great guy. He used to be an account guy at GSDNM when I was there. He went on to uh, work at Le American Legacy, which is the truth, people. Um, uh, great guy. And for one reason or another, I didn't buy this idea, but I just loved it. Part of the thing is that about stopping smoking. This wasn't truth. Truth is about preventing smoking. This was about people who smoke to stop. And one of the things about addiction, which I was quite an expert in, was that it's not, it's not a choice. It's not a choice anymore after a while. Why you smoke? You smoke because you have to, because your brain chemistry has changed. And a lot of people think, well, I've tried quitting before and I can't quit. Uh, I just tried and I started smoking again. So I'm just going to not quit anymore. I'm not going to try anymore. I don't have the willpower. So willpower is this false enemy that people deal with when they're trying to quit smoking. Uh, or drinking, anything, the willpower. It's not a matter of willpower. It's simply not a matter of willpower. So I had this idea for the world's worst superhero and it was Willpower Man. Willpower Man stands in front of the train and says, I shall stop the train and gets run over. Yeah, so Willpower <laughs> Man is the world's worst superhero 
who just wants to stop these inevitable things. Um, and uh, when uh, I left GSDNM to come to SCAD, Eric had the storyboard uh, mounted and framed, a picture of Willpower Man on the train tracks. Uh, and I'll give him shit to this day that it's a great fucking idea. And I'm actually talking to Eric tomorrow. I, I just thought of him yesterday and I said, let's Zoom. And so we're going to, and I'll bring this up and I'll make him listen to this whole podcast. Just I love it. Story. Luke, I will, I will end where I started and I will thank you for intervening in my life with yeah. your with your book at a time when I needed it. And I think what was true for me has been true for countless others. And, and you put a lot of us on a path to a career in an industry that we really love. So I've really looked forward to speaking with you today. And I can, I'm just gonna end by saying this, Mr. Froggy really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> Good talking to you, man. All right, thank you so much to Luke Sullivan. Thank you as always to my partners at JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. Uh, I wish you the best 2021, which we hope is in every way and inverse to the year we just experienced. I'm very excited for the year ahead. Excited to keep the podcast going with some uh, great new guests. And I'm very excited to share some personal news with you, uh, uh, hopefully in the next episode as we enter 2021. Until then, if you like the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, happy new year and peace.